It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from the Times. Yes, I'm back and I'm really, really sorry. I feel like I need to... Apologize on behalf of News Corps for, for last week. I was away, of course, on another continent, and unfortunately, Allison Rudd could not step in. Uh, I know it was rough uh, with Max Rushton, uh, but but he does he does his best. And look, it's okay to be different. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but the good news is Allison Rudd is back with us this week. And Allison, you're going to be filling in for me next week too, right? That's the that's the rumor. That is exciting. That is exciting. That's fantastic. Maybe you'll have Max on as a guest. I do hope so. That I can be... show him how it's done. Exactly. Exactly. He doesn't have he doesn't have too much experience in uh, radio and television, after all. Um, also joining us, it's Tony Cascarino, and from the lovely hamlet of Didsbury, home to one Rory K. Smith. I have never been to Didsbury myself, but uh, they tell me it's it's leafy uh, and posh. Um, somebody who I'm guessing would rather not be living there. Is that right, Paul Hurst? <laughs> no, no, I love it here. The, um, the gates keep all the, uh, all the commoners out. So, yeah, it's very well protected and, and, and lovely. Yeah, it's very nice. But are you one of those posh Yorkshiremen like Rory and Ben Machel? Uh, yeah, I, I, I try, to, try to pretend that I'm not. I'm actually putting this accent on right now because <laughs> I sound a bit more working class. I'm, I'm, I'm part of a, a middle-class hub here in Didsbury. It's very feel very honored to be part of it. Speaking of middle class, later on we're going to be joined by Matthew Syed as well, who is going to be talking some Saido Berahino. Uh, there's tons to discuss, but we're going to be starting at Stamford Bridge. Cass, I'm going to begin with you, since you actually played for Chelsea. Um, going into the, the Chelsea's two games against Liverpool and, uh, and Arsenal... I um, had a chance to, to speak to somebody close to Conte, and he kind of said, you know what? The worst thing that happens is if we get two points out of these two games, mm. um, we'll still have a six-point lead. Mm. They got four points out of it. They got the draw at Liverpool, of course, and then this absolute beatdown. Um, they have to feel pretty good about themselves, right? Yeah, um, great week for Chelsea. Conte showed in the two games um, how tactically astute he is because... They go to Anfield, they deny Liverpool, uh, and I thought Liverpool were okay on the night. They didn't quite reach the heights of the early part of the season, but Chelsea really had them covered in most areas. They knew where the problem was going to be. It was going to be from the central midfield area. Done it brilliantly, and I sort of felt against Arsenal. If Arsenal went with the same 
formation of the, the three up front with Walcott, Sanchez, and whether it was going to be a Wobi or Ozil, I just thought they had much more running power, Chelsea. They would drive them in many areas, especially out wide. And I, I thought it was one-way traffic for most ways. And, and, and to be honest, Gab, I didn't think it was a game after 20 minutes. And as much as they lost 3-0 at the Emirates, I thought Chelsea absolutely just ruined them physically. And that's what Arsenal can't match. They can't match that physicality of a team that is so dogged. In central midfield areas, it was a non-contest. I didn't quite get why Oxlade-Chamberlain was in that midfield area. Well, okay, I was going to save that for later, but I will Mm. bring that up, and I'll I'll play Wenger defender here unless anybody wants to uh, step in for me. I kind of felt like if you're Wenger, what are you supposed to do? Mohamed Elneny is playing in the African Cup of Nations final, so he's not there. Santi Casorla is injured, of course. He's not there. Granite Xhaka... Suspended. Aaron Ramsey is, I presume he was injured. Yeah, he was. Um, Somebody's got to step into central midfield, right? And and play with Coughlin. Oxlade Chamberlain is really your only option unless you're going to revolutionize everything. And I don't think it was a good fit because you know that Chelsea don't particularly need to win. They can play on the break. So it makes such a difference if you have a passer in that Mm. two in front of the back four. He went with Oxley Chamberlain because it's the best option he had. Well, I, what's he supposed to do? Well, I would say the Ox isn't great defensively. I don't. Uh, That's look, great. Who, put, who, who, who you? Who, I mean, like, well, Gab, you've you got could, you've got you've got four guys who are better than him in that position who are all out. So well, yes, but you go you to the can, next in line. You can um, alternate your team. You can find a different way. I talked about the front line before the game, and I said if. He was to play Welbeck and Sanchez, or Giroud and Sanchez, down the middle. It gives something different for Chelsea to think about. Now, I so watch... Go 4-4-2, you mean? Go, go 4-4-2. Try something different. Now, as much as you might think, absolutely no chance. Would you go, tell you what, let's go and stick Gabriel in midfield alongside Coquelin. Because they've got Matic and they've got uh, Kante. Who are both high energy and both are very good at defending. Stopping and spoiling the play. OK, I don't see on a regular basis, that being a solution. But look, one game, I was thinking, I'd rather play Gabriel there than right back, because at right back, he can get absolutely ruined, like we saw in the game against midweek. But I would I would want someone with physical attributes to take on what Chelsea's engine was. Do you want them to, to think outside? The, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a bad shout. I, I just thought they were so overmatched on paper when you're yeah. playing Oxlade-Chamberlain there. Maybe it wouldn't have been great. What, what do you think of the, of the Cascarino solution? Well, before before the game, I wrote a piece saying just as Conte reacted very quickly mm. to being um, outclassed by Arsenal in September, and right after half time, he he went to three at the back, and that doesn't happen very often. I know it's fairly rare for a manager to to, to change the system that way. But I said, following you know midweek embarrassment for Arsenal, maybe this is the time for Wenger to go to Stamford Bridge and surprise people with his ability to see Chelsea are on a procession to the title. What can you do to interrupt it? What can you do to surprise people? You're absolutely right, Gab. He had very few midfield options, but he's still got quite a lot of depth there to, to, to meddle with. And Why didn't he go through at the back? Why, why, not, why not do something that makes people think Wenger's actually not stuck in his ways, He's actually analysed this fixture and he's worked out a way to give Chelsea something to think about. I think probably the most annoying thing about the Arsenal performance was they did not give Chelsea anything to worry about. You can't, you can't be Arsenal, go to Stamford Bridge and say, well, we'll just try and do our best, do a little bit. It, it felt very insipid. Paul, my, my, my difficulty 
with with Arsenal, on the back of what Allison says, is I absolutely hate it when people go and, and they turn metaphysical to explain sort of um, shortcomings. And they say, well, you know, they lack bottle, they lack fight, blah, blah, blah. Their pansies are going to fold. They've got three players in their match day squad with double-barreled last names, which is not a good thing. But I kind of feel that between this and the Watford game, that's kind of a logical explanation. Can you help me and give me a more rational reason about why Arsenal are kind of imploding a little bit other without mentioning the B word? Alison talked there about the depth of the squad. And if you look at someone like Cochrane coming in, who's supposed to be, you know, he was the, you know, he was the answer to the problem they've had in, in defensive midfield a few years ago. And they've obviously, that didn't work. So they, they've brought Xhaka since. And I just think he kind of symbolised on Saturday what Arsenal's problems are in terms of their squad. He was so flaky. You know, the flick to nowhere that led to Hazard's goal just kind of summed him up, really. And then his feeble attempt at trying to get the ball off this guy who is a lot smaller than him. He couldn't get the ball off him, shrugged him off him. I just think over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how how weak they are defensively. Uh, Mustafi was also supposed to be another, you know, the, the answer to their, their defensive problems. But he's looked, he's looked very weak. You wouldn't have been surprised if you'd been told that Arsenal, beforehand, that Arsenal would lose at home to Watford uh, and lose quite easily to Chelsea. I don't think anyone was surprised at how how um, uh, how poor they were in those two games. I'll hold my hand up. I, I thought Mustafi was a good signing, and I thought the Mustafi-Kasialni partnership would be, would be really good. I've said it here. And I think they can be good when they've got sort of a rational settled group around them when they've got Oxide chamberlain and, and Cochrane playing like that, maybe less so. But I wanted to ask you just sort of mechanically, Cass, um, and I appreciate you probably haven't been the chasing, holding midfielder many times in your <laughs> career. But that hazard goal, which I thought was, was tremendous because he beats Kassialny, then <laughs> there's that bizarre Cochrane thing, and then he beats Kassialny and Mustafi again, uh, and then he scores. Um, the weird Cochrane pirouette amongst them. Hey, can you explain how it is? Because obviously Hazard is squat and strong for, for a guy his size. But but how does that happen? Did did, did Cochran just lose his coordination? Was his footwork wrong? Or, um, well, uh, when... when he it, just looked terrible. Yeah, well, he makes two attempts, doesn't he? The first attempt he doesn't really. He gets sort of pushed off quite easy. And the second attempt, he nearly catches an arm from Hazard. Look, he's a pocket dynamo. And when you get close to someone like that and you're running, you're stretching, you're slightly off balance, where Hazard is fixed to his position and he's running towards the goal. And he just can't manoeuvre Hazard at all. Because he's like a little... He's a... I mean, as much as we love his, his pace and his, his ability to, to run at people, his upper body strength kept Cochrane at bay. That is something that most players can't do because the way that Hazard is made, he's a low centre of gravity. You're going to have to shift him off the ball. You're going to have to take a hell of a lot because he's so strong as well. well he's uh, so fast, though. Can you not just, I mean, again, hindsight being twenty twenty, With hindsight, he should have just tripped him. That once you're stretching, Gab, you're off balance. Well, that's fine. But once you're running so fast, it only take a, takes a touch to bring you down. It, it, yeah. Was it weird that he didn't foul him? I mean... I think I, he tried. <laughs> I think he tried, Gab. He just couldn't because he stretched. I just thought that was remarkable. Uh, uh, another incident, and we'll turn to our qualified referee. Marcus Alonso and the elbow on Hector Bellerin. Wenger, absolutely adamant, 100%. That's a foul. Conte said, no, especially not in England. Um, who's right? 
the referee was right. And Antonio Conte, by extension. Indeed. Well, I don't, don't I mean, well, come on, let's not trust the managers in these situations. They're well, going to say what they, they have to say. Well, was this Wenger deflecting or like uh, wearing the Wenger glasses? I don't or? know. He, if it's your player, your team, you're in charge, you probably you probably see it filtered that way, to be honest. But, I mean, t- I, mean I think me and Tony agree completely on this. If you're going to challenge yeah. for the ball in the penalty area, you cannot do that unless you use your arms. And it's up to the referee to decide if the player is trying to gain an unfair advantage by using his arm to elbow a player's head. But the trouble is with this incident, because it, there's lots of rolling around and dazedness, it looks like it must have been a dreadful, dreadful challenge. But it's you can't take the consequences and then say then work backwards and say, oh, it must have been a foul because it looked awful afterwards. It's, it's, it's it- a tough tough, feisty attempt to get the ball. It is not illegal. Hey, Cass, you, you addressed this um, <laughs> uh, in, in the game on, on Monday, and to me it looked like Alonso's eyes are fixed on the ball. Yep. He, just, he just wants to head it. He needs to jump as high as he can to get it. It looked to me like Bellerin, who's obviously a lot shorter, he's a mm. small man, runs into him to try to challenge him and, and takes the elbow. But yeah. is, is that kind of what happened? And I'm assuming you've... you've <laughs> In your career, you've had a few stray elbows as well, but um, you can tell when somebody's trying to to whack someone and yeah. when they're. Well, I've probably had in my career that type of challenge more than a hundred times. Now, Bellerin's going slightly sideways and backwards, which obviously he can't get much height on jumping. You try jump backwards, you can't never get as much height jumping forward. Alonso is running forward. So the challenge looks worse because Alonso is running onto the ball. He's totally fixed on it. And he outjumps him by more than a foot or so. With that, his arms catch his face. But it's not an elbow. It's not a deliberate attempt uh, for me of a foul. So I think Bellerin's got himself in a bad position. He's going backwards. Alonso fixed on the ball. And there's only going to be one winner. Now, the reason why Bellerin's trying to get underneath Alonso, he's trying to keep running backwards. If you keep going backwards... you can backwards, put him off. Yeah, you can't... If you're in the air right. and someone's backing into you, you can't get the power on right. your header. So, I think he's tried, he's tried, but he hasn't quite got enough. If he's another yard, I don't think Alonso gets the power on his header. But he's totally fixed on the ball gap. If you, if you want to stop this type of goal, stop heading in the game. Because, to me, that's a perfectly legitimate goal. Maybe that's something we should consider and, and limit the uh, head injuries as well. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Paul, I want to ask you about Marcus Alonso because when you've got players who've, who've been in England before, like we, we sort of form a verdict, then they go away, and then it's like we think it's the same guy. And so if he comes back, oh, he wasn't that good for Sunderland. When In fact, I thought he was pretty good on a bad Sunderland team. But, okay, so he's not Roberto Carlos, but he's good in the air. He has a tremendous, tremendous left-footed delivery. And in one-on-one situations, while he's maybe not a speedster, he can certainly jockey his opponent and 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 defend well. Um, and yet, there's all this general assumption that Alonso's just some kind of weirdo stopgap. But what's your take? Is he actually much better than people realize? I think he is. Yeah, I think often, quite often, when you see teams play a three-five-two, we've certainly certainly seen this with Manchester City this season. Is that the opposition team will always try and pick the hole in behind the wing backs? Um, to try and pin them back, you know, to get when, especially on the counter attack. But with Chelsea, you just don't really see that that often because he works so hard that he, he he's got it in his locker to kind of cover both bases to be a, a fullback and a winger, which is obviously you know what what a wingback is, uh, is is supposed to do. And it's the same with Moses on the other side. I and mean, those two are really you know two of the you know the, the revelations of the, of the season. Obligatory wither Wenger point. What, what, he, what said, he said on um, Friday, I went, I went to his press conference on Friday, we, we were pressing him on, on his contract because there's all, 
it feeds on itself, doesn't it? If, if you don't know if he's staying or not, what impact does that have on the players and the club's ability to attract players and whether they'll sign the star players to extended contracts? And he just said, it's not quantitative. It's my gut feeling, he said, whether I sign or not, which tells you everything. It means it's entirely up to him. The board will have him if he wants to stay. He brings them top four every season and that's financial stability. They love him. And that feeds on Wenger. The parallels there. Wenger is the same with his players. You don't ever feel he's prepared to mix things up, drop people, really yell at them, make them scared. There's this sense of it just being too nice and comfortable. It's a comfort zone club from the top. From the board, to the owner, to the manager, to the players. Players are at Arsenal Football Club now. Maybe we'll sign contracts. Now, what sort of... I, I don't get that. If, if you're a manager of strength and power, you say to Sanchez or Anoza, whoever, if they want to prepare to be the future of the club, you make them make a decision. You don't sit there thinking, well, maybe they'll sign them. If we offer them as great as we can, or we'll break See, the... I find all that, every situation at the club, feels to me wrong. On the contract front, though... I kind of think Arsenal are playing this correctly. I don't know how much of a market Ozil and Sanchez... I mean, from from what we know, there's a big contract offer on, on the table. I don't know who's going to beat that. I, I don't know that there's this tremendous market for, for Ozil and, and Sanchez where they would move on and go to bigger clubs. I agree with you on one. I, I do think that Sanchez would have far more options than Ozil. Where could he go? Well, there's always places you can go, Gab. That's, yeah, that's... I mean, are Bayern Munich going to pay him more than 200 grand a week? I don't. I don't. You're not going to go back to Barcelona. No. I think we can rule out Real Madrid for obvious reasons. Would you not consider another Premier League team who would match at least what he's getting? You know, I thought of this, and frankly, other than United, and I'm not saying you know what teams could he fit in and, and make them better, but I don't think he's a fit at City. Plus, they've got tons of players in in, in those positions already. At Liverpool and Spurs, you don't see them going and pushing the boat out that far. I don't think he would fit Chelsea, at least with his scheme, as long as, as Hazard's around and, and whatnot. So I, I don't mind Arsenal saying, like, listen, like you got a good thing going on here. If you want to make more money, I dare you. I double dare you to go to China. Paul, I'll give you the last word on, on Wenger and contracts and all that good stuff. I think if you're Arsenal, if you're on the Arsenal board, they're in love with, with Wenger. They, they won't usher him out the door. But they're also, if I was them, I'd have in my mind what happened at Manchester United as well. I'd think that, you know, after after Fergie left, there was you know, three years of underwhelming football and very poor performances in the league. And a lot of money seven. spent, which Arsenal, Arsenal's owners won't like. Exactly. And I, I, I mean, I'd, I, I thought originally that Klopp would have been a perfect fit for them and they've obviously missed the boat. But yeah, the, the three years of instability that followed, well, the, you know, the instability that c- continues to exist at Manchester United will have put Arsenal off making that decision. And they're not a very decisive board. They just let Wenger rule the roost ever since he arrived there. So they, they're not willing to make a decision to cut ties with him. And it's basically up, up, up to Arsene and, you know, Arsene does what Arsene wants. Right, moving on to Hull and Liverpool. You kind of don't know what to say about Liverpool and their start to 2017, other than the fact that it's been absolutely horrendous. Um, let's start with Hull City and Marco Silva. 
Paul, there, there was a perception, obviously, among some people, and there's a great, by the way, Football 365, there's this thing called Media Watch where they go and make fun of people in the media. Um, this fantastic one, just absolutely ripping Cascarino's mates for mocking Marco Silva and you know blocking the pathway of another brilliant manager because Marco Silva doesn't know the Premier League and whatever. It's funny. We don't need to go and cover that ground. But they brought in a ton of new players, most of them guys who nobody wanted, like Umar Nias and Andrea Ranocchia and, and whatnot. But the sort of mini revival sort of predates the new signings, right? They've got a lot of other decent players in that squad. You look at the young winger, Josh Time, and he's started out playing out left back, then he went up to left wing. I think he was playing just behind the, uh, the striker against... Because uh, I was curious about this guy, Time, because I'm like... Because obviously earlier this year when they had their injury crisis... Um, you know, and it seemed like, oh, poor Mike Phelan's only got five guys, and that's only if you count Tom Huddleston twice because he's big. But um, is he somebody who maybe was overlooked a little? I think I think he's he's played more under Silva. He's only seventeen, so you know you can understand right. why Mike Phelan was a bit more uh, reluctant to give him a go. He's a very focused guy, Silva. I probably you know had a unrealistic expectations. Of him, because I thought, you know, he's, he's a friend of Mourinho, or Mourinho says he's a friend of his, and I expected this big kind of grandstanding kind of manager, but he's very withdrawn, he, he keeps his, his opinions to himself, um, and he just seems to be getting on with it. I know that's a, that's a bit of a, of, of a cliche, but he just, I mean, he, he's got them playing uh, playing well, playing attractive football. What's he doing differently, play- though, from what you can tell? On, on, on the trading ground, he's got them trading more. We know that they're... He's cancelled days off. He's got them in, you know, more more days of the week. So he's he's, he's drilling them a lot more, which which you need to do if you if you bring seven new players in, you need to make sure they're aware of of what he's what he's trying to do, uh, and he's, he's given them given them confidence as well. You, you look at the way that Nias took that goal. You would have never expected that from him during his Everton days. He just the way he cushioned the ball with the outside of the foot as he went through, and then you know he, he decided to nutmeg the goalkeeper rather than there's a big gap either side of him, but he decided to meg him. Just to, you know, because he knew that he could, and and it was it was it was a great goal to see. Cass, you've you, you've played for some some bad teams at times when <laughs> there's been a managerial change. Hey, can, can you provide someone? What do you see in in this guy? Coach, knowledge of football. He brings in five players in January from Olympiacos, Inter, Villarreal, Liverpool reserves in Markovic, Ren, uh, and uh, yeah, Nias, you know, uh, from Everton under 23s. Knows what he wants, prepared to let players go. We've got to remember he's let players go as well. You know, he's lost mm, his top goal scorer. In, well, yeah, it's Snodgrass and Livermore. So he's, he's lost players, but he's recognised what he's needed. They've beaten Liverpool 2 0 and they've gone to Old Trafford and not conceded. So that's telling you, at the coaching guide manual, he knows completely. how to set him up a team. Completely, completely. Um, I, what I find remarkable, though, about the guys he's recruited is that Umar Nias didn't score in all of 2016. I, and if you actually look at his, at his career before that, he had half a good season in, in Russia. And, you know, and it's not like he's 19 years old. He's 25, 26, I think, at this stage. And he's obviously somebody whose confidence, you would think, would be totally shot, given the situation with Koeman. Uh, he brought in Ranocchia, who is the epitome of a guy who's been absolutely destroyed and, and put through the ringer, a guy who at 21 was supposed to be the next big thing, and then kind of for like a ton of years afterwards was, was frankly terrible and the butt of jokes. And, and it, was, it was painful to watch this guy. And then he steps in, and with Ranocchio on the pitch, they haven't actually conceded. Um, <laughs> I, put it this way, if you, 
if you think of it in terms of like the old stereotypes that we throw around and oh relegation dogfight i need tough-minded warriors these are not the people you would pick nor would you pick camel grzitsky frankly not a bad player but you know not exactly what you would think of or as we you know a 17 year old josh timon that's what i find absolutely mystifying fair play to the coach all this is going on while there's protests against the the owners and you know fans aren't turning up um they've got a ridiculous situation where fans have been asked to buy membership cards rather than season tickets where there's no concessions for for oaps or, or for for children and um, that's what that's why the fans are staying away and, you know he's he's kind of shut himself sure, off can you explain that. this a little more the alarm family um in the summer made this quite frankly ridiculous change to the ticketing system whereby you now pay a, a monthly membership fee to the club rather than a season ticket and it's the same price across the board you know if you are a 30 something professional you, you you will benefit from this because your price will either you know go down or is, is, is more or less level to what you were paying before but if you are you know if you're a 60 odd year old bloke who's, who's on on a pension you can, I think it's thirty pounds a month, so three hundred and sixty pounds a year, and that's a, an increase on what, what what they were paying before. And it's the same for for kids as well. So that's what you know. You can understand why people are staying away. I went to the the second leg of the uh, League Cup semi final, and there was only there was only sixteen thousand there. Three or four thousand of those were Manchester United fans, and that was you know, a huge occasion, a cup semi final, um, and people are staying away. One one tier of the stand was shut. Obviously, we should talk about Liverpool because people here, I'm sure, have... Do we have to? Well, let's start with Mr. Mignolet. Um, oh, <laughs> it's funny because I, I made a ranking a few years ago for, for ESPN about sort of, you know, good signings, bad signings. And I got into this enormous discussion with this guy who's like a math PhD of some kind. He's a super clever guy, but he arguing and arguing that Mignolet was actually one of the top five goalkeepers in the world and blah, blah, blah. And he was as good as Courtois and... I don't understand what this guy's problem is because sometimes he looks good, sometimes he looks terrible. Everybody, you know, went and had a go at Carius. Um, he had the little diatribe with, with Gary Neville. And I'll ask you, Alison, do you want Loris back? Do you want to no, you, you back no, for Loris or, or, or the Simon? No, I would. I, I, it's interesting you're starting with Mignolet because I don't think that is currently the biggest problem Liverpool have. It is a problem. That Wait, Liverpool he, gives have. Up, he gives up a stupid goal and then they score a second goal on the counterattack. If he doesn't make that mistake, there is no first goal. Yeah, but they got a point then, against Chelsea because he pulled off one of the best penalty saves of the season. You, 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 is there such a thing as a penalty us, save yes, or is there, it actually there, but a penalty that's the point. Miss? That's the point. In that case, it was a save. Usually it's a miss. Old days, in the olden times, keepers would do this. They would do something brilliant one week and then they'd make a gaffe the next. And we've, we've, the art of goalkeeping has, has progressed enormously. So now we have these super keepers who just seem to only make one mistake per season as opposed to one per month or once every three weeks. And Mignolet's of that old-fashioned sort. But I think overall, overall, he has, because of his age perhaps, I don't know, I would, I would still stick with him over carriers. bigger problems than Mignolet. But, but, well, I mean, but, but, I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm saying but I'm surprised you started ones. with Mignolet yeah. because because there are loads of problems. Okay. One of the problems Perfect. is, let's just get this one out of the way now because it's the one that's annoying me the most, is after the game, Klopp said, even though at this moment it feels really bad, it's not the biggest problem in the world. He says that, or words to that effect, every time Liverpool draw or lose. 
And at first, everyone thought, oh, how refreshing. Because he's right, isn't it? It's only a football match. <laughs> the point is, the managers who do really, really well, and Liverpool should be doing really, really well, they don't say things like that. It's 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 it might be you might be might be cute and eccentric and refreshing. Yes, but I, I honestly think there comes a point. There comes <laughs> a point where if you say it after every single time there's a mistake, you're mm. thinking, hang on, hang on. What sort of message is that giving the players? He says he was angry at half time, and then at the end he says that he's sort of saying, oh, it'll be okay eventually. <laughs> Let's not get too upset. Every- Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You asked one question there, what is the biggest problem with Liverpool? Now, first of all, the goalkeeper situation, he doesn't particularly favour either of them, does he, really? He, he dropped Mignolet and he's dropped Carriers. So he doesn't really fancy his number one. He's got two strikers he doesn't really fancy either. But the, the thing that's masked everything about Liverpool has been how brilliant their midfield is. Their midfield got them out of so much trouble during the season, they, or the early part of the season. Goals from everywhere, created so many problems for the opposition. Now that midfield is was pretty much... So I don't like the word invisible, but they just didn't show up compared to what they were. Are now, they tired? I looked at Lalana and he looked yeah, like another guy relative to what he was doing a couple of months ago. Yeah. Well, I would go, Coutinho obviously coming back from injury, he hasn't quite right. hit the right ground. We've had Mane go away. We've had Lalana looking tired. Henderson, you looked at a hole in the midfield. Sean, Emre Sean, struggling. So the whole engine room of Liverpool, which won them games, because no other area of the pitch, they haven't got two goal scorers up front or one individual up front who scores loads and loads of goals. Their whole idea of their game plan was midfield players winning them games. Firmino, gone off a bit. Nowhere near where he was. So they've had a whole host of players, from midfielders to offensive midfielders, that have caused a bigger problem. Because now when they're not scoring, whole City might take advantage of a mediocre goalkeeper. Because that goal typified Mignolet for me. And Alison's right, there's good and bad days, but you can't challenge and have a, a good and bad day goalkeeper. You can't win things. Paul, you're not a Liverpool fan, uh, as far as I know. To me, it seems that maybe the style of play, which is physically demanding, might have a lot to do with it. But then I look at the flip side, I say, these guys don't play Champions League football and they haven't actually played that many games. I think it was six games fewer uh, than they did last season at this stage. Um, is the physical side, is that a, an acceptable excuse? I think having spent a lot of time in Jose Mourinho's company this season, he's always keen to point out the fact that Liverpool do not have any any, any European commitments and therefore should be a lot fresher. The, the intense game that Klopp plays is bound to have an effect uh, on the team and uh, Dortmund he, he obviously when it came to winter time there was a winter break for his players to relax and, and you have a couple of weeks off and recharge their batteries but you know it's, it's not been the case here I know, I know he bought Carrius in the summer but when Joe Hart was available I don't think City would have had any objections to him joining Liverpool I just don't see why what, why they didn't take a chance on him was it even a chance on, on taking Joe Hart he, he, was, he was there he was available he wouldn't have cost them that much he, he, or they could have taken him on loan and he just seems far more assured than the Mignolet has been of, certainly over the last couple of weeks. Isn't the explanation in that that Joe Hart on the ball with his feet isn't 
Agreed. I mean, the same reason I think Pep wasn't so into him. And I, but I think that is a, that's a good point. I, I, I want to wrap this up with, with, with one question. Um, in our piece, and I don't recall who actually wrote it on, uh, on Liverpool's issues this year in the game, uh, they point out that <clears throat> in past years, they could kind of revamp and reinvest by, by selling a prize asset. They did it with Suarez, they did it with Raheem Sterling. And that, you know, maybe there isn't somebody like that now, but in some ways there is. And I think the elephant in the room is, is Daniel Sturridge. Uh, I suggested earlier this year that um, if Sturridge wasn't going to play, you should maybe sell him while you can and get some money and get guys that Klopp likes. Is this something where now they, they, they do have a director of football that Klopp should be asking himself, all right, I either get this guy on the pitch and figure out how to play with him so that he can contribute to the team, or I need to think about selling him and maybe selling him now because every week that passes his value presumably goes down. Is that even something Liverpool should contemplate, selling Sturridge? Well, you said earlier, Gab, that you didn't think there were that many tutors for Sanchez. So how many do you think there'll be for Sturridge? I think there'll be many more. Um, and I think the reason is Sturridge isn't on Sanchez-type money. Sturridge is, is English, and I think that matters as well. With the TV contract, I'll give you a scenario. Okay, I, I mean, this is just an example. I'm not saying they're going to sell it to Everton, but if Everton sell Lukaku in the summer, right, and they'll get a big 90 million pound wad of money, you could probably trick them into spending 30, 40 million on on Sturridge. I mean, we are talking about a guy who, when he plays, he scores a really? ton of goals. Do you really think there'll be a suitor for 30, 40 million for Daniel Sturridge at the moment? The English clubs, English clubs, eh? Do you really think there is? I, it might not be a top six side if Harry Kane leaves. Maybe you can look at maybe I I I don't I mean, if if we look at the the history, I mean, look they sold Benteke for a ton of money. You don't think you could get you could get Benteke type money for for Sturridge? I don't think no. with his injury record you could. No, I don't. In our debate this week, we're going to talk about this this incredible story about as I find it incredible about Saido Berahino. Uh, a little bit of background for those who aren't. Uh, Saido Berahino, enthusiast like I am. Uh, this is a guy broke through a couple of years ago, scored a ton of goals. Everybody loved him. He was at West Brom. This was summer 2015. It looked like he was going to join Spurs on deadline day, and then the hard negotiators went at it. He ended up, uh, he ended up staying put, and then he sort of disappeared for a while this season, and we all wondered where did he go, and then he moves for. Not a lot of money because his contract is expiring to Stoke. And then it emerges that he received an, um, he received an eight-week ban, uh, a secret ban, which reminds me of Animal House and being on double secret probation, uh, an eight-week ban um, because he tested positive for a recreational drug. Matthew Side joins us as well because, Matthew, uh, you wrote about him. I, I want to start with the principle of... This is where I have a problem. I have a kind of a, I don't have a problem with your employer banning you if you test positive for recreational drugs because presumably it's written in your contract. I slightly have a problem with uh, with a league or an entity banning you. Before we get into the anonymity issue, if you're a lawyer um, and you test positive for drugs, you might get banned by Mishkan Durea or whoever you work for, but you're not going to get temporarily disbarred by whatever professional association of lawyers is out there? Some professional bodies may well have in the code of conduct um, 
that you're not allowed to break the law or bring the professional body into disrepute. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Society of Lawyers has rules in the Code of Conduct for Lawyers that bar the taking of recreational drugs. I wouldn't be surprised if that was true of doctors and other professional bodies. I mean, I think I kind of get the distinction you're driving at, but I don't think it's terribly relevant here. I'm surprised that you're shocked that the the FA has a say in this. If you're if you're taking a substance that messes with your head, you're you're a danger to your opponent. You don't you don't you can't play in a league. You can't play football if your head's not right because you're taking a crazy substance. It's perfectly it's perfectly logical to say no, you're not no, you can't play. Sorry. If you're taking ecstasy or cocaine, you can't play. Well, first of all, it's not like the effects last eight weeks he, he's, I don't think he was banned because he played under the, infu- under, well, no, under he, the he influence well wouldn't be allowed to well that's fine but I mean the same way like they don't people, you don't ban players for getting drunk and that messes with your head as well right I mean it's against the law I, I mean I think the interesting debate is on anonymity not whether the FA or the club is the right body to introduce a sanction I mean I wouldn't be at all surprised if the FA did it with the blessing of the clubs, that the clubs agree with this. Remember, the FA is an association of the clubs um, in the same way that the Premier League is an association of the top clubs. So, uh, I mean, for me, the really tricky moral question is anonymity. I'm quite sympathetic to this in the sense that if somebody's got, as Alison said, if they're taking a substance that's messing with their head, if they're addicted, if there are real deep-seated problems at play, and not always, but sometimes this is the case, and we know about the Sporting Chance Clinic, which has a very large client base of top footballers and other athletes who have become addicted to various substances. So I kind of, a priori, are quite sympathetic to the idea of uh, an anonymous ban so that they can come to terms with it without the... But, but Gab, in your introduction, you rightly pointed out that the problem is if it's a confidential ban, it means that virtually any player who isn't appearing for the first team might fall under the cloud of suspicion. Um, and moreover, as in this case, a player can pretend to be mystified that they're not playing, confident yeah. that the ban won't be leaked, and, and, and actually act in a duplicitous way. So which I, is what he did, theory, actually. Which is exactly what he did. And, and then, it was, <laughs> then it was leaked by one of the clubs just before they played the team that he's now in. So I, I think that the FA were acting for the right reasons and in the right way when they brought up the idea of a confidential ban. My, my hunch is, frankly, that... The unintended consequences are so uh, obvious that perhaps it would be better to explain to the public that the ban is in play um, and then ask the media to, I mean, it might be an unrealistic request, but to give the particular player in question some space so that they can go away and deal with the issue. Paul, I, I want to get you on this because obviously you cover the Northwest Beat, which gets a tremendous amount of attention. This was Saito Berahino, so and this is West Brom, and, you know, he's not necessarily a superstar yet and his disappearance could be chalked up to Pulis didn't like him and whatever else if this were Slatan and he went away for eight weeks there is no way that they'd be able to preserve anonymity because too many people would know right yeah we'd be asking questions left right and center and you know it would come out uh, I don't think there's any, any any question about that it's a difficult one isn't it I, I get what Matthew was saying in terms of if Berahino does have a, you know, a genuine problem, anonymity would have helped him in his rehabilitation. But at the same time, a part of me thinks, you know, he could just be hiding behind it. You know, he's so embarrassed by this that they're just trying to hush it up. And I think at the end of the day, he's, you know, he's committed a, 
committed an error. I know I know we, the, the role model argument gets rolled out quite a lot. Part of me does think that the FAA should have announced this. They, they announced all the suspensions as well. Um, and I just think he, he may have just been too ashamed by it for it to for it to come out. And you know he's, he's a responsible adult. He's not okay. If if, if he was you know, fifteen, sixteen, he, you know this is he shouldn't be put in the in the public arena, uh, no doubt. But he's twenty two, uh, twenty three. He has been called up to the England squad before. He's played for the England under twenty ones. You should be responsible enough to take the flat that comes your way if you do transgress like this. We should also point out now uh, that we don't know if Saido Berahino has a drug problem or an addiction. We simply know that sure. he tested positive at least once. That's all that we know. Um, Matthew, I want to ask you from, from an ethical perspective or business perspective, everybody's been at pains to point out that Stoke were, were made aware uh, of this fact uh, when, when they bought him. Again, I wonder how that plays into the anonymity argument because you can see why they should be made aware uh, as opposed to just being caveat emptor. But by the same token, if that deal had fallen through, that would have done him no favors with his anonymity either. So I think obviously the club that is purchasing has a right to know if a ban is in play for the player that they're going to buy. Um, so I think that's absolutely right, uh, that they should have been told. Um, and uh, I sort of, I'm sympathetic to the idea that I think Mark Hughes raised it. He was it before or after the game when he said that he felt that the league may have been at the selling club after the event. But then you can understand why the selling club felt angered that Berahino had described himself as mystified that he wasn't in the team. I, I think very few people come out of this well. Um, and there are lots of complex issues at play. I mean, you're right about that. It, it, it is difficult. And I, and I totally hear what Paul says as well that this was an error of some kind. But you know, I've been down to that sporting chance clinic. I, I got to know Peter Kay very well, who was the, the the figurehead, the late Peter Kay, who passed away tragically, who himself had been abused as a child, turned to alcohol and became an addict and died as a consequence, frankly. And I've met a lot of people who, who have been down there and have felt that they needed that space in order to come to terms with what are quite deep psychological ironies associated with celebrity, fame and money at a very young age and often young people who become top footballers. I'm not saying this is an excuse, but merely describing a phenomenon that, that undoubtedly exists where they really do struggle with what it's all about and, and drugs are a way of escape. And I do think that it's important that we understand that in the context of this. Barahino may be a completely different example, maybe fully okay with his celebrity and took it as a one-off and is not in any way addicted to drugs. I hope that is the case. Um, but I can sort of see what the FA were trying to do with the rule that they brought in. Um, but as I think we are sort of agreeing, the unintended consequences means that it's probably not going to be able to survive as a, as a rule going forward. Well, thanks to uh, Matthew there. Um, Cass, I want to get your take on this because obviously... Um had some ups and downs as well, uh, as we all have. Should somebody who takes recreational drugs be banned from a sport, or should it be a matter for his employer, say, like, you know, you broke the rules of your contract, the terms of your employment, we will get you help? Yeah, of course you need help. He's had a gap year. He's had a year off. Yeah, we're talking about his eight-week ban. He's, he's had a year off, Casado. He's hardly played a game. He had fallouts with... Quite clearly, the chairman, Jeremy Peace, 
I would think probably inevitably Tony Poulis because he didn't select him. And he's got to look at himself because Sado hasn't played football for a long time. I looked this morning, he hadn't scored a goal since February last year. You know, Still this better is better than Umani has. You know, so you've got to say, Sado, you, what you're doing off the field is affecting you, not just for the eight weeks, it's affected you for a whole year or maybe even longer. So he has to take responsibility hey, and accept I, I a ban. Jump into he has the, to have a ban. On this, though, the, but, but, what, but a ban from the club or a ban By from the FA? I think the club should ban him for a while and seek help for him and try and realise that, you know, what he's got in front of him, he can affect his whole life by making daft decisions. If you're only going to go short bans on these type of things, Gab, you're only allowing more players to think, I might only get eight weeks if I do something wrong. Berahino didn't apply himself properly. He didn't commit himself properly to West Brom on the pitch, on in, in training. And obviously now we've found out that in, in his social life, he didn't, didn't look after himself properly in, in that respect either. So he's got to, you know, smarten himself up really in, in every in every department. He is 22, so he's got he's got a good 10 years at least left in his career. But you think about what he might be at this stage already had he actually applied himself properly. He'd be, you know, he, he could have... He could have 20 England caps by now. Okay, enough Berahino and drugs. Uh, how about some quick hits instead? Tottenham are second after beating Middlesbrough 1-0, but Allison, it was rather hard work, wasn't it? How confident are you in them as the main challengers for Chelsea? Well, it feels as though this is Spurs' blip. And if this is their blip, they're coming out of it rather well. And uh, they've got some relatively easy games coming up. And uh, I think you say it was hard work, but really you look you look at you look at the performance and you think it was classy enough. It's fine. There are no problems there. More likely to finish top four, Spurs or Liverpool? Um, today, today, <laughs> Spurs. Can I go back to that one? That little instant poll. I'm a bit we, cross today. I know, so I won't bring up the fact that we had a poll about whether what I was wasn't as cross then. Liverpool to win the Premier League or United to finish top four. Gabriel Jesus is the new striking sensation at City as his late goal gives them a 2-1 win over Swansea. Paul, does this mean the old striking sensation, Sergio Aguero, could be packing his bags in the summer? Or are you not reading that much into his quotes? I think he was very frank about it, wasn't he, after the match, Aguero? He said, the club will decide if I have a place or not. And, you know, given how important he has been for City over the last few years, it's quite a... You know, it's quite a quite a sea change, really, and it's all come down to the fact that Jesus has started uh, incredibly well. Um, two starts, he's one goal and one assist, and he's had a massive impact. Yeah, I, I think we're kind of getting carried away here a little bit. Uh, a Gabriel Jesus is not a centre forward and never really played centre. I mean, he's still young, but he doesn't play in that position, and I think Pep must realise that. And if you're Aguero, what else are you supposed to say? Like, I'll give everything I have, and then if the manager doesn't want me to start, then maybe they'll sell me elsewhere, right? I mean, it's a lot of money to carry on the bench. Manchester United pummel Leicester 3-0, and Mkhitaryan shines. Go, Mickey, you're so fine. Cass, would you rather praise Mourinho's tactical switch away from a 4-4-2 or talk about Valencia and his crossing, as you did in your excellent column? Um, or both? Well, I'll touch on a bit of both. I, I felt that for first 30 minutes against Leicester, I didn't think United offered too much offensively. And I do think that Slatan sometimes needs support. Um, with that, um, Valencia, who I really like, I just think is an absolute 
He just does that wing-back job brilliantly and he fizzes the ball across the face of the goal so often where most people are looking to chip out or chip it at the far post, get it to people and go attack. He comes on and fizzes it and I think he does that better than anybody in the league. See, I find your man crush on Valencia curious because I, I know where it comes from. Obviously, a centre-forward, you're like full-backs who could cross the ball back. Well, but I would have thought you'd prefer those hanging crosses that, that you yeah. could attack rather than than those that sort of fizz across the goal mouth. Um, you could have scored on both, I suppose. Yeah, but I'm not playing anymore, so it doesn't matter. Do <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Speaking of Leicester, relegation draws nearer. Allison, Casper Schmeichel seems angry. There's all sorts of rumors about unrest in the dressing room. What's your take and how likely is it that they will be the first champions to be relegated in nearly 70 years, which is older than Ranieri? Yeah, uh, I don't think it will happen that they'll get relegated. I think what will happen is they will have a surprisingly good performance against Seville in the Champions League and that will give them a boost of self-confidence. Um, there, I mean, there, there is a fundamental problem at the club, which is uh, Ranieri was so laissez-faire last season and allowed their momentum to grow organically that there isn't the relationship there for him to sort of impose his philosophy on the team and it's probably a little lax but I think uh, good game Champions League people like Schmeichel getting really really angry it'll it'll just do enough to save them so basically Ranieri can't all of a sudden go and be bad cop he can't put on his Archie Knox mask because it's hard to see how that works when he's not done it before Romelu Lukaku scores four goals as Everton obliterate Bournemouth. Paul, are we too quick to point out Lukaku's flaws and should we just appreciate him for what he is, the Premier League's top goal scorer? Yeah, I, the way he took his goals on, on Saturday was particularly impressive. Sometimes I think he, he's carrying that, that team on his own, but he, he seems to bring other other players into it. The Barclays started to improve recently as well. You look at United and who they might replace Ibrahimovic for a couple of years and I know Josie's not a massive fan of Lukaku, but he would seem to be the perfect replacement. In a couple of years, judging by his track record, Jose might not be there. Yeah. He, he might he might move on after winning his third Champions League. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hold my hand up because I was one of those people who thought that Big Sam was the right man for Palace. I still believe that. I still hope I'm right. But now doubt is seeping in, um, especially after seeing them get absolutely destroyed by Sunderland. Cast. Do you want to blame Allardyce or praise Moisey? Well, he tried to do a lot in the transfer window in January this year, which he did in the previous year with Sunderland that kept them up. Now, Scott Dan keeps going off injured and Delaney's playing nowhere near the level he was before. He played punching in front of the, the back four, which didn't really fit for me. Did I'm not... Pardew did that too? Why? How does this guy keep getting a game? Well, Jason Punching used to be a centre forward. I, but but it's, <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's like the Andrew Sermon principle. Like, you don't understand what... I, I feel like I'm missing something. Maybe mm. if I watched them more in person, I would see more. But what what are these? No, are, I don't. I don't know what you see in Jason Punchin. But he's bought the boy from Olympiacos, hasn't he? So he probably will fit him as a six and play in front of the back four. But Sam's got changes to make because they were out the game very quickly against Sunderland, and um, I think it surprised everybody in the game. Are you part of Sam's army? Are you a believer? I'm not sure. I'm not the one. I'm not one of them type of people that thinks just because what's happened before, it's going to be inevitable that he keeps them up. I don't think it's as blatant as that. I think as we stand today, it's a coin flip whether Palace stay up. Maybe the players are good, and he's more clever mm. than maybe fifty. He's in the top fifty percent of managers in well, the Premier League in terms I'd of intelligence. I'd be worried because not only defensively they conceded goals. Wilfred Saha's performances have dropped alarmingly since Sam's gone there. Jesus, Saha and Townsend. Ugh. Gab, I have a question for you. Yes, thank you. Uh, Cameroon are champions of Africa. Yes, and yet, no, that's it. And yet, they weren't tipped. 
to win it. So what happened? No, they were, they, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal underdog tale. I would have loved to have written about it. And uh, I call them on Monday and said I had to write about stupid stuff like Monaco and Nice. But it's a great story because basically they were seventh favorites going into this competition out of 16 teams. Start with the manager, Hugo Bruce former Belgian player, but, you know, he's managed a lot of Diddy teams over the years, and he sees an ad on the internet for the Cameroon job, so he sends his CV, and then he follows up with phone calls, and then, like, the Cameroonian FA are kind of like, wait, who is this weirdo? Because, you know, yeah, we advertise a job, but we don't really expect people sending, you know, managers don't get hired that way anymore, but but he, he, he bust balls so much, nobody else wants a job, that he gets the interview. The local media, not impressed uh, at all. Uh, then he calls his preliminary squad for the competition. And of course, as everybody knows, seven senior players turn it down, uh, including Joel Matip and then Alan Neom. Now, some of these guys, obviously Matip apparently said he was retired or whatever, but all of a sudden, certainly the way they read about it in Cameroon is like, look, actually these people don't like you. They don't want to play for you. You're a fool. And then he goes into this tournament and then the few veteran players he has, like Nicholas Nkulu, Clinton Jay, who, who of course was at Spurs last year, they get hurt in the group stage, in the knockout phases. Uh, they've basically had one guy who plays for a team in one of the big five European leagues, one guy in the starting 11. And that's, that's Mukanjo, who plays for Lorient, who are, by the way, dead last in, in France, France right now. Um, it's amazing. And yet they go, they, 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 they beat Senegal on penalties. They beat your buddy Avram Grant's uh, Ghana in the semifinal. And in the final against Egypt, who, you know... Favorites. Favorites, clearly more gifted, perhaps the outstanding player of the tournament in, in Mohamed Salah. They go behind, and you expect Egypt, you know, so smart, so tactical, blah, blah, blah. They've won, the, won it seven times. You expect them just to ride it out. Instead, they come back. This guy, uh, Abu Bakar, who plays for Besiktas, comes in, scores a tremendous goal at the end, you know, flicking the ball up over the defender's head and then and then, and then shooting on goal and against a 44-year-old uh, goalkeeper, uh, Mohamed Al-Hadari. That was, would have been another great story. And, uh, and they're champions of Africa. I mean, I think this is a really, really uplifting underdog story, which but shows... explain what happened, but how did that happen? So those players who would have been starters anyway, like they have this guy Basogog, who plays in Norway or one of those Scandinavian countries, um, they felt let down by the fact that these other players didn't bother joining them. And they really stepped up several levels. I think the weight of expectations was off them. At every step down into to the group stage, they kind of felt like, all right, well, let's just not embarrass ourselves. Okay, well, we got this far. Let's just, you know, there's no, nobody expects anything from us. Senegal will probably destroy us. Let's just go and, and be tough and be, de and be defensive and pick our spots. And they did that. I don't think Hugo Bruce is some kind of tactical genius, but it's also difficult to tell because, frankly, most of these players... We don't know them. We don't. I don't know them. I watch a lot of football, but it, it was tremendous. I mean, I think you know this is not dissimilar to, to Greece in two thousand four. Was that longer than thirty seconds? Slightly. It was a much better story. <laughs> You're talking some nonsense about Sam Allardyce. <laughs> Remember. You can uh, subscribe to The Times. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. You search The Times online. Really not that difficult to do. Um, you can also subscribe to our podcast. In fact, you should subscribe to our podcast. In fact, maybe you've already subscribed to our podcast. Uh, you can do so wherever you choose to download your podcast. Uh, also, leave us a review on iTunes, only if it's nice, um, if you happen to be listening on an Apple device. 
We have people who meticulously read all the reviews and provide feedback. Uh, I'm not going to be around next week because I'm going skiing, but Alison Rudd will be here and she'll be taking great care of you. So, Daniel. <laughs> the game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.